Well, hello, and uh, we are going to be continuing in our sermon series, The Mosaic of Christmas. And what we are doing this, this year for Christmas and our Advent season is that we are taking the, the four Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're, we're highlighting when Jesus comes to earth. And that's what we celebrate during this Christmas season. And what's great about the, the four Gospels is they, they have these beautiful pieces that offer uh, different aspects of Jesus. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. Um, but as a mosaic, you have all these different pieces that come together to make this beautiful picture. It's the same way with our Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They have these, these beautiful pieces that we get to put together to we see a full, a glorious picture of Jesus. And last week, uh, we saw how uh, Pastor Chase talked about the, the coming of Jesus in one verse, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, and we talked about how Mark is that fast-paced action gospel. Um, and, and today, we're actually going to be on the opposite side of it, where, where Mark has basically one verse about the coming of Jesus. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke today, and Luke has literally 101 verses about the coming of Jesus. It's so much more uh, detailed than that. If we think about it this way, if Mark read like a comic book, you know, very, very action-oriented, very, very fast-paced, very quick read, um, Luke is more like the epic sweeping novel. It's very detailed. It's vibrant. It's vivid. It's, it tells about the, Jesus, the coming of Jesus and the, the life of Jesus in a chronology. It's, it's this beautiful history of Jesus. Now, the author, Luke, um, wasn't a disciple of Jesus, like he didn't hang around him when Jesus was here on earth, but Luke was more like a, an investigative reporter, um, a, a detective. And, and Luke's gospel, um, the writing of Luke is about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And, and what, what Luke did is he would, he would interview eyewitnesses. And so there were still people, uh, many who were still alive uh, during that time, so friends, family, relatives, right? Like uh, people who witnessed, people who were healed, all these different people. Luke would go around and interview them, and he compiled all of these eyewitness accounts into this uh, beautiful book, the book of Luke. Now, Luke also could have very well have interviewed Mark at this time as well. There's a number of overlapping things, but there's 41 unique stories in Luke that are, that are unique to just Luke and not any of the other ones because he did such investigative reporting. And uh, it, it, it says that, you know, like, like the, the gospel of Luke is really, really fascinating because it has been a, a, a marker for uh, archaeology, for history in a number of centuries uh, following his account. And in the, in the early 20th century, there was an a, uh, archaeologist and history professor by the name of Sir William Ramsey. And Ramsey was a professor at Oxford in history. Um, he was knighted for his work and scholarship. He was, he was very, very well-educated. He was very well-known. He was a part of pretty much every historical society known to man. And what he did is he actually set out to disprove 
the book of, Mar- the book of Luke. He set out to disprove Luke's historical account. He would go and do different kind of history because he figures if you can disprove Luke, then you can disprove Jesus and you can disprove the, the Bible. And, and in his research, trying to, trying to undercut the, the credibility of Luke, um, it was really fascinating because as he approached it, um, this, this was his findings after his scrutiny. This is what he would say about Luke. Luke is a historian of the first rank. The author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Further studies showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians. So what we're going to be looking at today is true historic events. Okay, this, is, this really happened. And it can be pressed further than any other historians in the history of the world. So as we open the book of Luke today, I want to I wanna have this anticipation as we've seen that this book has been tested and tried and come out on top. And so as we, as we look at, at this today, we're going to see this beautiful part of the mosaic of Jesus. And what we're going to see is this, is that Jesus is the people's king. Jesus is the people's king. Okay, that's, what, that's the, the big idea of what we're going to see today. Jesus is the, big, is the people's king. Over the past two weeks, we've seen how Matthew showed how the, how the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of promises made by God. And last week, we saw how, how Jesus is, is a king who has authority and he's worthy of being followed. And today, we're going to see in Luke that he's, he definitely is those things and he's even better than we imagine because he's also this piece of the mosaic that we put together. He's the people's king. He loves people. He loves the down and out. He takes a special interest in people on the fringes of society. He's kind. He's gentle. You know, we think about this when we think about people who, who are famous or royalty or have power and influence. And what we love is when they appear to be a good person, and then later we find out that they really are a good person. We see this all the time, right, of, of people who they're, they're famous, and then you find out that they're also humble and kind and good. We talk about people that they're like, they're a player's coach, or, or they're a leader of the people, or they're down to earth. Those kinds of things, what we're going to see is, is that Jesus is the better example of all of those things. And so as we look at uh, the book of Luke today, and we look at the 101 verses, we're not going to read them all uh, this morning. I'm going to give you snippets along the way, but I would encourage you to read it. It's the most detailed Christmas uh, 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 event that we have on record. But Luke uh, 1 and 2 really cover this, and so that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be kind of taking sections and jumping through this because I want to show you how Jesus is the people's king. And the first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus came for the outsider. Jesus came for the outsider. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Um, uh, I want to talk about uh, the outsider. Now, now in the, in the Bible term, the, the word for like kind of outsider, people who were outsiders were known as Gentiles. These people were non-Jews. These, these people were not part of the promises originally of God. You know, we see the, these kinds of things. They were, the, the Old Testament is a history of the Jewish people and how God sustained them. And, and people outside of that were Gentiles. And Luke would be writing both to Jews and to Gentiles to cover the whole gamut. And, and what we see um, in this is that he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is not a Jewish name. Many scholars would believe that he is a Roman nobility. He's of Roman leadership. He's, he's maybe even a, an official. The use most excellent before Theophilus' name would say that he is someone of prominence. Um, but he's also got a, a Roman name. Theophilus is a Roman name. And so what we see in this is that, is that Jesus came and the message came to people outside of being Jews. This is huge. This is monumental. This means that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is not confined to a certain group of people, a certain race of people, a certain ethnicity of people. Jesus really is the people's king. He is for all people. And we see that because the good news has already gotten to Theophilus. And, and Luke is compiling this group of stories, these eyewitness accounts, to come up with, to show that with certainty that what we have been taught is indeed true. And the truth is, is that Jesus came to remove the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between those who were a part of the, the family of God, the part of the history, right? And, 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 and people who were wanted to be brought in. This is this beautiful picture that Jesus came to bring the outsider inside his family. Jesus came for the outsider, but Jesus also would come for the forgotten. Jesus came to the forgotten, verses 5 through 7 of Luke 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah and of the division of Abijah, and his wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, if you've heard the Christmas story, if you, if you grew up listening to the Christmas story, or maybe you went to church on Christmas, you would hear a lot about Mary and Joseph. And you're like, okay, I get Mary and Joseph, but who is Zechariah and Elizabeth? Who are these people? And, and Zechariah and Elizabeth um, are two people who fear the Lord, who love the Lord, who are righteous. They're humble people. Zechariah is a priest and, and his wife, Elizabeth, and uh, they're of, of the lineage of being of the priestly family. So these were the people that would go into the temple or offer sacrifice for the people. And, and that was Zechariah's role. 
And they loved the Lord, but they had one thing that was uh, a cause of, of sorrow and sadness, and that was they had no children. They had no children. And in, in, infertility in today's world is very sad. And the people who struggle with infertility, and we have people in our church who struggle with infertility, it is a, it is a very sorrowful, hard, difficult thing. And in the times of Jesus, it was compounded on top of that because, because your children were your security. They would take care of you in your old age. And on top of that, if you didn't have children, many would think that maybe you were cursed by the Lord, that, that God wasn't giving you children because he was punishing you for something. And here's Zechariah and Elizabeth. They, they are God-fearing people. They're righteous in the sight of God, and yet they have no children. And after a while, she is as barren, but they're in their old age, and they have long since forgotten and abandoned the hope that maybe someday they would have children. And maybe everyone else forgot about them too. But the Lord would remember them. And the Lord would actually uh, do a miraculous thing, and Zachariah and Elizabeth would conceive and have a child, even in her old age, and they would have a son, and his name would be John, and he would become John the Baptist. He would become the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who baptized Jesus. He was a relative of Jesus. Mary and Elizabeth were relatives, and they would have this baby, and Jesus, God would come, and Jesus would come for the forgotten and give them this special role in history. And so even though they may be forgotten by society, they were never forgotten by God. And God often will come for the forgotten. So Jesus comes to the outsider. He comes from the forgotten. He would come for the disenfranchised. We're going to skip ahead to verses 35 through 38 of chapter 1. And the angel answered her, her being Mary, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Luke's gospel is incredible because it shows how God would interact with the least of these, the people that are, you know, we talked about outsiders, we talked about people that are forgotten, and now we're talking about people who are disenfranchised. Luke has this myriad of interactions of Jesus with women, Jesus talking to women, Jesus interacting with women. Shows how he would show favor and concern for women. We live in a world that's broken. And often what happens in a broken world is that, is that people who become disenfranchised or people that get pushed out to the fringes or people that get taken advantage of or, or, people, or people that become oppressed, often it's children and often it's women. Often in our world, um, the, the rights and the, the dignity and the, the, the vitality of women is stripped away. But that's not God's plan. God's plan is to show the dignity and the value of women as God's creatures and God's creations, image bearers. And so he sees how men and women are both 
cared for and concerned. But women often have been one without influence, been one without power, been one without authority. And what I think is amazing is that on this earth, the, the first people that would learn about Jesus' coming uh, into the world and the first persons that would, uh, would learn about Jesus' resurrection were women. That God would come to the disenfranchised and give them this special message to proclaim to the world. They came to women first. And Mary, Mary's miracle was that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. This was a, a birth, this was a, a pregnancy that happened not by natural means. She had never known a man. Um, it's, not, it's not something that would have happened that way. It was a work of the Holy Spirit that, that placed life in her womb. And Jesus would come to those who have little power and little influence, and he would do something incredible. And what we see often in the world is that God continues to do that because he comes for the disenfranchised. He comes with those who don't have power and influence and often will do an incredible work. Jesus would also come for the insignificant, for the insignificant. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also came up from Galilee and from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The birth of Jesus is locked in history. It is a historical event. And Luke talks about when it happened. When did it happen? Well, it happened when Caesar Augustus was ruling the Roman Empire. You may have heard about him from history books. It was also in the, he, he ruled for some time, but so we talk about this is, the, this is the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is historical fact, that there was a man named Quirinius that was governor of Syria. And so it starts to place the timing together, and it says, during this time, Caesar Augustus wanted to take a census. He needed to register all the people. He wanted to track all the people. And so he, he does these things. And, and Joseph, who is betrothed to Mary, he, that means a, an engagement, but it's more legally binding than that. It's, it requires a divorce to, to break off a betrothed uh, situation. And, and Joseph would take Mary, and they would go to Bethlehem, and they were living in Nazareth at the time. So they would go from a small town to another small town. Bethlehem is not a big city. It's not a metropolis. It's a, it's a bedroom community. It's, it's, it's a small village. Um, and Nazareth wasn't much of a town either. And so from, from Nazareth, from a small town, they would go to another small town. And, 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 and Joseph was from the lineage of David, uh, the king, the, the, the prototype king, the one that God promised the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come from. And he's from this line, and he had to go back to his place of origin, his place of uh, being born. And he would go there, and, and 
they would go back, and, and I'm guessing what happened was is since everybody who was born of, you know, lineage of family that had to go back to Bethlehem, their place of their origin, Bethlehem's not a big city, gets overrun by all of these people coming back to be registered. And, and, uh, and what we see in this is, is, is that there was no place for Mary and Joseph to stay. The place is packed. It's, it's, there's no place for them to be. The, the inn is full. And so they, they end up in a stable, and they end up spending the night there, and it comes, it just happens to that happen that it came when they were there that it, it was time for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to a son, Jesus, the one who was conceived and, and, and made in Mary's womb by a work of God. And she wraps them in swaddling cloths and she lays them in a manger, a place where they keep food for animals. His crib became, it was a trough of, of food. And in this insignificant village, in this insignificant place, to these insignificant people comes the Savior of the world. Jesus often does his best work in the insignificant places with people who are humble and willing to be used by God. So Jesus would come for the outsider. He would come uh, for the forgotten. He would come for the disenfranchised. He would come for the insignificant, and he would come for the outcasts. Verses 8 through 13. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that is to be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." Shepherds were not notable people. They were lower class. They were, on the, they were on the lower bracket of the income ladder, of the hierarchical ladder, of the social ladder. They were, they were often kind of strange. They lived, uh, they lived with their sheep, so they were in isolated communities. They were off by themselves. They had to sleep out there. <clears throat> Getting choked up, apparently. Uh, they had to sleep out there. with their sheep to protect them from predators. And so they spent all their time in isolation. And they smelled bad because they were around the sheep a lot. And they were, they were kind of those people that were out there. They were outcasts. And yet the big announcements, the angelic announcement of the birth of Christ, where did it come? It came to shepherds in their fields, not in palaces to kings, not blasting it over big places. They didn't come to the Pharisees. They didn't come to the priests. The angels of the Lord came to the shepherds, the outcasts of society. And this is where the proclamation would come. You see, Jesus is the people's king. Jesus is a king of the people. He, is, he comes to us. He comes to us in our insignificance, in our forgottenness, in our being an outcast, of being an outsider, of being disenfranchised or without influence, right? Like God loves to come to us wherever we're at, no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how the world perceives us. 
If you've ever felt forgotten, if you've ever felt like an outcast, if you've ever felt like an outsider, if you've ever felt disenfranchised, if you've ever felt insignificant, know that God takes great delight in coming to you and in coming to all of us. And so this Christmas season, let's remember that God is this beautiful, glorious, amazing king, the king of the universe that comes to people and even insignificant people, even forgotten people. So this, this Christmas season, I want us to do two things. I want us to remember. I want us to remember what God has done for us and who God is and how beautiful this new piece of the mosaic comes in and makes this even a fuller picture. But also, I want us to respond. To respond in faith in Jesus Christ. To understand that none of us are too far gone or far enough, you know, we're never too far from God or too far gone or that we don't matter. Know that you matter to the Lord. And in fact, this Christmas season highlights the fact that he came to people just like us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to see that you have come to us. You come to us when we're insignificant and outcasts and disenfranchised and outsiders and forgotten. And so, Lord, it's, it's this beautiful thing. We worship you knowing that you're this great majestic king, and yet you take great care for the little things and the little people and the little guy. Thank you, God, for loving us so well. And we get to see just how beautiful and glorious and good that you are. And so this week as we live our lives, let us remember this so that we can trust you with all of our lives because you care for us and you pay attention and you remember and you're near. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.